After that performance, and of course it was beautifully, beautifully played, there was a group of gentlemen standing over in the corners 20 minutes after the performance ended. And I went up to them. There were, I think, three or four of them. They were crying after that performance. One of them was a former astronaut. I mean, these are not weird people. There's something about these instruments when they're played perfectly that, uh, that reaches you emotionally in a way that's hard to describe. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, a radio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and I want to welcome you to the second part of an interview I conducted with David Fulton, a noted violin collector and award-winning filmmaker. David lives in Bellevue, Washington, and I sat down with him recently to discuss his collection of violins, violas, and cellos. He owns one of the most significant collections of rare violins and violin bows in the world, although he is now beginning to sell off the collection. Why? Well, we'll get to that. But first, let's listen to the violinist James Ennis play a composition by Edward Elgar on a violin made by Antonio Stradivari in 1709, known as La Pucelle. One of the most celebrated instruments in David's collection is a cello that was made by Antonio Stradivari in 1713. It is known as the Bass of Spain, and the remarkable tale of its travels across continents and through the centuries is one that David loves to tell. Well, the Bass of Spain has one of the most interesting stories of any instrument I can name. It's called the Bass of Spain because it came from Spain, and because uh, the term bass is what they used to call a cello. It was called the bass. And uh, it's quite a famous story. Uh, the initial story is written down by a man named Charles Reed, who was a famous novelist in the 1800s in England. And uh, he was friends with Luigi Tarissio, who's the man that actually brought a lot of these instruments out. Well, the story goes like this. There is in Madrid a young noblewoman, and she has a Stradivari cello. Uh, she notes that there's a little crack developing in the top, so she takes it to a local violin maker, a man named Silveria Ortega. Ortega, as was not uncommon in the day, but I think with great arrogance, makes a new top for the cello and takes the Stradivari top off and hangs it in the window of his shop. Unbelievable. And then 
And he's hanging it in the window. It's hanging it, in the window of the shop. I don't know how just long. Just so people will know it's a shop? Yeah, I mean, like, it's like a sign, like an advertisement. Yeah. Hanging an uh, authentic Stradivari top in the window of his shop. It's unbelievable. And so uh, presently, a man named uh, Chanot, a dealer from Paris, is walking through the streets of Madrid, and he sees, to his astonishment, an authentic Stradivari top in the window. And so he goes in and buys it and continues to pester uh, Ortega until Ortega explains to him where it comes from. So Chanot takes it back to Paris and hangs it somewhere in his shop. Enter Luigi Tarissio, a very colorful character. Anyway, Tarissio comes in. He sees the Stradivari top. He buys that from Chanot and turns around and pesters Chanot until Chanot reveals where it comes from. He immediately sets off on foot. He, he couldn't afford a carriage to Madrid where he goes and pesters the young noblewoman until she finally makes what she thinks is a very good deal and sells him the rest of the cello. He then takes those pieces, he gets on a boat in the Bay of Biscay, crosses the Bay of Biscay, going to Paris. And in the, in the midst of crossing that, he uh, runs into a tremendous storm. And he said for a couple days it was unclear whether they'd make it or not. And he's telling the story to this novelist, Reed, in London. He says, my dear Mr. Reed, can you believe it? The base of Spain might have been lost. Reed comments, well, was this not a true aficionado? He didn't note that an ephemeral worm named Luigi Tarissio might likewise be lost. <laughs> anyway, Tarissio takes it to London, and uh, Viome then pastes the thing back together, and then the base of Spain is reunited with its top. So, uh, by the way, I might add that uh, the... This probably took place in a matter of a few weeks. The value of the cello in that period of time went from 5,000 ducats or whatever it was to 20,000. So the violin trade has not changed very much in the meantime. Anyway, and the story now, there's a little lapse in time. We have to go back in time because there's a very colorful man that enters the story, Isaac Merritt Singer. Isaac Merritt Singer was a boot black, an actor, a metal worker, and also founder of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. And uh, he was a very colorful man. He has uh, uh, wives, uh, two uh, that he marries, and two common-law wives. And uh, he fathers, I think, something like 26 children over the time. He's a big, burly man, has red hair, he's six foot four, and uh, apparently very popular with the ladies. So he is in New York and has, uh, he's out with his wife in a carriage, and she spies his common-law wife with her four children in her carriage. He has children with both of them and starts to upbraid him over that. Isaac Merritt Singer knocks her to the floor uh, when he gets home. He's as a temper, apparently. And uh, she sues him for bigamy because he has a common-law wife. He is put in jail very briefly, but then... The scandal is so tremendous that he has to leave the country. He goes first to England and then winds up in a, in an, in a, um, in a hotel in Paris where he takes up with the hotel, uh, hotel uh, owner's 19, or I think about 20-year-old daughter, Isabella Boyer is her name, and uh, they have a lengthy affair. Finally, he marries Isabella Boyer, and, um, and uh, they have six children. So he has a tremendous family. And there are lawsuits. The common-law wife tries to get access to his money in one thing or another. So anyway, Isabella Boyer winds up being the uh, 
the heiress. Now, she's an interesting person in her own right. If you want to know what she looks like, she's said to have been the model for Bertolucci's Statue of Liberty. So if you go into New York Harbor, you can kind of see her there uh, welcoming people to this country. That's supposedly what, what uh, she was the model for that statue. Okay, she, of course, when Singer dies, leaving her a young widow, I think she's in her early 30s, meets and marries a man who is named Victor Rubesite, who is a musician and a singer. And uh, he uses the singer money to assemble. He, oh, first she buys for him a dukedom from King Umberto of Italy. And so he becomes known as the Duke de Camposelice. And he buys, with the singer money, a tremendous collection of instruments, including the bass of Spain. So the bass of Spain enters the Camposelice collection. He's apparently quite a character. He beats Isabella, and her young son, Paris, age 16, sees his stepfather beating his mother and knocks him to the floor, after which the Duke, apparently rather hot-headed, uh, challenges him to a duel with pistols. Isabella has to send her 16-year-old son to London with her attorneys to avoid a duel with her, with her husband. <laughs> Rubesite dies after a few years, and they sell most of the collection, but the base of Spain stays in that collection. Now, it passes into the hands, uh, eventually, of a man named Paris Singer. Paris Singer, amongst other things, is a paramour of Isadora Duncan, the famous dancer, Isadora Duncan, I guess, made her name by wearing togas and things doing classical dance. And I think she wore very little in addition to the togas, but at any rate, you know, flowing dresses. So she, uh, they have a child together. Isadora Duncan, unfortunately, dies tragically. She's out one day after uh, the child is born, driving in her Bugatti with a long flowing scarf, which she tended to wear, which gets caught in the rear wheel of the Bugatti, the spokes of the rear wheel, and she, she's, her neck is broken as a result of that. That's how she dies. So anyway, Paris Singer also is associated with, with uh, Addison Meisner, who's the architect who is responsible for the uh, Spanish revival style in Palm Beach. So uh, it's fascinating. You have, you have this cello associated then with this wonderful story that Charles Reed tells about the top being in the window and being replaced. You have a connection with the Statue of Liberty. You have a connection with Singer's sewing machines. You have a connection with Isadora Duncan and with the Spanish Revival style in Palm Beach. You, by the way, you can see a picture of Paris Singer, I'm told, in the Boca Raton Hotel. His portrait is there, I believe. So this is the Paris that was the 16-year-old son who That's got right. into the fight. The same. Same, yeah. The same. He's the last recorded owner of the instrument. In, uh, in uh, Arthur Hill's diary, he records that uh, the bass of Spain is in his possession sometime in the 30s. So tell us now how it got into your collection. Well, the bass of Spain, uh, I, I knew about the instrument, and I'd always wanted to form a B strad cello. Stradivari's cellos fall into three periods. The early ones, which had great bass and not such hot treble. The late ones, which are more narrow, have wonderful singing treble, but not necessarily the wonderful bass response. And the form of B cellos, that just means mold B. So that's his, the mold he used for the ribs. And the form of B cellos are his, his greatest creation. Uh, they're people who prefer Guarneri violins to Stradivari violins. Uh, there's nobody who prefers anything to a Strad cello. They're really his supreme creations, I think. So the bass of Spain uh, was one of those cellos, and it's a very great cello. I'd wanted to form a B Strad cello for years. Now, there are 26 of them in existence. 
And there are many that are in museums and institutional hands. There are some, unfortunately, that have been wrecked. They've been revarnished. One great cello, the owner uh, tripped backstage and broke the back into three pieces. So there are a certain number of them that have been ruined. And of the ones that are available and haven't been ruined, you're talking about a very, very finite subject. And I wanted one because I always knew about the former B-Strad cellos. I had made the assumption, because I knew the story about the back of the cello, that it was probably an authentic but pretty well beat up Stradivari cello. And uh, finally, uh, Paul Childs, my friend, the bow, the bow expert, managed to get the thing and bring it to, to me to see. Um, I am not an expert. I've never claimed to be an expert. Uh, any violin collector that becomes his own expert's a fool. But at any rate, um, I assumed the cello was very ordinary, but I, I, I'm not an expert. I invited Robert Bine and John Becker, the great luthier violin maker and restorer, to come to the house here uh, because I can't comment on authenticity or condition of an instrument. I'd never, ever trust my judgment. So they came in, we're all sitting there, assuming that the cello is going to be, you know, a beat-up but authentic form of B-strad cello. In comes the cello, and, and the, the case met our expectations. It was a beat-up, ratty old case. Open up the case, and Becker and Bine did the next, they basically fell to their knees and started kowtowing, you know, exclaiming, we're not worthy. Well, they didn't really do that, but it was as if they had, because it's a wonderful thing. It's my favorite instrument, and I don't even play the cello. It's, it's a very great thing. It has as much varnish as the average string quartet, authentic varnish, and... Um, I can't help but wax enthusiastic about it. I have had three great cellos. I had a wonderful Montagnana. I had a wonderful Guarneri cello that was the best of them, in my opinion, owned by the great English cellist Beatrice Harrison. And I've had the Strad cello. But I found I had to show them to guests in a certain order. First, I'd pull out the Montagnana, and the cellist who's visiting would play it, and they say, oh my God, that, that's fabulous. There can't be anything better. Then you haul out the Guarneri cello, and the floor would shake and the windows would rattle and they say, this has got to be tremendous. Then you haul out the Strad cello and the voice of God enters the room and nothing else is touched after that. It's an amazing thing that the Strad cello is not louder than the others, but it's, a, it's vocal, it's a very human thing. And the voice of the cello is like a great singer. It's like a great uh, a baritone singer. And uh, it's very human sound. These instruments, particularly La Pucelle and, and the bass of Spain, when they're played well, the others will wow you and they'll amaze you and abash you with their power and their strength. Uh, the Strad cello and the La Pucelle make you cry. Because somehow they're wired straight into your emotional centers in a way I don't understand. They're amazing things. They're amazing things. In 2014, David Fulton invited the Miro Quartet to come to Seattle and perform the String Quartet No. 15 in G major by Franz Schubert, using instruments and bows from his collection. David then assembled a crew of cinematographers and sound engineers to make a film of the performance. Here is part of the first movement of that quartet, so you can hear the voice of Stradivari's cello, the bass of Spain.
Over the years, I have found that life moves in cycles, like the words that come down to us from King Solomon the Wise. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. And so it is with David and his passion for collecting violins. Here he shares what collecting has taught him about himself and the world of fine violins and those who buy and sell them. For me, collecting... I, I loved the violins, and, and they certainly gave me an ability to assess what I might have done as a violinist. And what I learned from that is I'm, I would never have been a great concert violinist. I don't have the chops. It's that simple. Uh, great violinists like uh, Perlman or Repin or someone like that can gain more in practicing for an hour than I can practicing for 10 years. It, it's, I think, what's baked into your sinews and bones and nerves. So I learned, I learned my limitations as a violinist uh, from that. But um, there came a time when I couldn't collect anymore. There was a particular viola, uh, the holy grail for an instrument collector, a uh, violin collector, is to have a Stradivari quartet, a quartet of Stradivari instruments. I have the, I have the violins, of course. Uh, I, have the, uh, I have the cello but I don't have the viola. Why? Stradivari, there are only 13 known Stradivari violas. And of those that will ever be for sale, uh, there may be two uh, or something like that. And some of them are in institutional hands. Some of them are owned, for example, by the Russian government. Some of them are owned by institutions. And there was one, the best one, the McDonald viola, so-called, is the one that I wanted. 
Well, Charles Beer and I, after Peter Shidloff, who was the violist in the Amadeus Quartet, died, we thought maybe we should take a run after that violist. So Charles and I went and we made what we thought was quite a generous offer. And the Shidloff family said no. Uh, the widow is still uh, grieving for her husband, and that viola has such significance to her, there's no way you could sell it. Fine. The widow dies. We make another run at it at a somewhat larger price, and uh, at a reasonable one, a reasonable price. And they said, no, it's in probate. We can't sell it now. So we wait another year or two. Uh, this is maybe 20 years ago. And uh, finally, uh, they say, well, we don't want to sell it. We made one more run. After three tries, I punted on that. And then five or six years ago, I got a call from one of the dealers in London saying, the viola, the great McDonald viola, is now available to you. I said, fine, what's the price? $45 million. I said, I don't. I said, I hope you get that because that'll do wonderful things for the value of the rest of my collection. And then last year, the Shudloff family, I believe, again was talked into putting the violin up for sale at auction, I believe at Christie's, and they put it up with a reserve of $45 million and made it clear no bid less than $45 million would be accepted. Viola did not sell. This is not a good thing. It's a perfectly wonderful viola, but uh, uh, number one, Putting it in auction is a very bad idea. If you sell things at auction, you get a fraction of what you could get selling them privately. Uh, why? Because the very best things never go into the auctions, like the La Pucelle, for example. Secondly, they put it in with a ridiculous reserve, obviously. They said, except no bid less than $45 million, and no bid emerged. I have heard it rumored that they had turned down a bid for $35 million for the viola. But it's a very bad thing for the instrument. If it doesn't sell, then people obviously think, what's wrong? And so it was not a good move on their part. I think, I think the decision to put it in the auction was a very poor one. But at any rate, that, I, I will never now have a Strad viola. But if I, you know, when, when it became apparent after the third try to buy the McDonald viola, I realized that I'd gone as far as I could go. I had the best Del Jesu that wasn't in a museum. I had arguably one of the top two or three Strad cellos, maybe the best Strad cello, again, that's not in a museum. Uh, I had wonderful violins, including La Pucelle, which is arguably the finest Strad that's not in a museum. The only ones that are its equal, there's, uh, of course, the famous Messiah Strad at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Uh, there is another one called the Bossier Strad that was Sarasati's violin that I think is in Madrid, also in government hands or museum hands. And there's no way in the world I can get a better violin. And uh, in terms of violas, I already had the best Guarneri viola, which is actually, as an instrument, maybe better than the Strad violas. But I realized I couldn't get a Strad viola. And for me, getting the best things, not the most, but the best things that could possibly be assembled was what motivated me. And somehow, when you run into that dead end, um, you lose heart at some level. And... Uh, so a year or two after that, uh, I started selling instruments and have dispersed all but the very best things that I have. And my, why? As, as I mentioned the story about Charlemagne, you can't take them with you. That's problem number one. Problem number two is the violin marketing world, the, the sales end of it, is very slippery. It's, it's a lot like the art market. 
and uh, it's controlled by uh, a few very powerful individuals, and some of them, well, let's put it this way, there, there is a continuum, a spectrum, if you will, of honesty that goes from one end of the market to the other. Some people like Charles Beer are perfectly honest. Some of them are very honorable. Uh, some of them are not so, and there's a continuum. You have on the one end crooks like a man named Dietmar Machold that's now serving time because he was basically running a pyramid scheme. You have in the middle a somewhat dubious issue like, uh, uh, okay, uh, Joseph Gingold had a wonderful Stradivari. Uh, his family was offered some for it, and then the dealers turned around and sold it for three times that amount. Right? Though they'd accepted it, there's nothing illegal there, but it's certainly of questionable probity, I think. Then you move up the honesty scale a little bit more, and you have a situation like a famous dealer I know, who's a great expert, goes into one of his subsidiary dealers. That he, He's a wholesaler, basically, for the subsidiary deals, dealers. He sees a violin over there. He says, if I tell you what that is, I, I would like half of what you get for it. So that's not dishonest, of course, but it is sort of, eh. And now the, on the positive end of the spectrum, you have people like Charles Beer, who's perfectly honorable. A widow comes in with the violin. He says, she says, I have no idea if this is valuable. I don't know if there's any merit in it at all. It's been in my attic for years and years. It's been in the family as long as I can remember. I don't know if it's worth anything. Can you tell me what it is? Beer says, Madam, you need to sit down. He says, that's an authentic Del Jesu. That's a Del Jesu. Uh, the, open, the market price for that is such and such. The wholesale price is this and that. If you would like, I'll give you a bit more than the wholesale price for it. Okay? He could have said, Madam, and this goes back to the story you were telling, Joe. It goes back to uh, recognizing that something is of real merit and, and re offering them something for it that they think is enough, but you know it's worth greatly more than that. But Beer didn't do that. He said, it's what it is. I'll give you a fair price for it. So that's the continuum, all the way from crooks at one end to honorable people at the other. So uh, that's not an environment I wanted to put my heirs into. I did not want them to have to negotiate those seas because um, it's a slippery business, and I didn't want them to have to worry about whom to trust. I mean, if Charles Beer was going to live forever, I'd say take them to Charles, for example. But Charles is in his mid-70s. In his health, he's had health problems from time to time. He's not going to be here when I'm gone. So it's a real problem. And so there's that. And the other thing is, having finished the collection, I've sort of lost the zeal for them. And You know, the thing about these instruments is they're, they're not very faithful, are they? I mean, it's rather like um, falling in love with a mistress, and but, but they'll go on to the next owner, and they don't care a damn about me. They really don't. I mean, they're, they're, they're somewhat faithless. At the end of the day, they're not living. They're not your children. They're objects. And yes, they might be wonderful objects, but they are objects. And you do what you can to preserve them. But on the other hand, you can't play God. And so you realize that uh, you might as well. You tend to lose your, your zeal at some point. At least I did. And also, there's another factor here, that having gone as far as possible with the collection, when you come to the end of a book, you close the book. 
And so we, we like to cruise on our boat these days. That doesn't leave much room for chamber music playing, for instance. The great challenge of existence, I think, is understanding its moral dimensions. Mm-hmm. So having gone into this world of collecting violins and all the things that come with the violin, all the associations that people bring to it in so many different ways, is to enter a universe in which moral and ethical behavior is very important. You're constantly working upon that, like grand play. And some people like beer are almost saint-like in the way they approach it, and others are very questionable. And so it's like that Wild West town that your grandfather probably lived in. Well, uh, frankly, uh, the whole fiddle-dealing business is much like that Wild West town. It's it's a very... uh, The art world is exactly the same. The art world is precisely the same thing. It's just bigger. Except, and you said that uh, in in the film, and we'll we'll talk about the filmmaking and storytelling here. I love how you ended that film, The Two Gentlemen of Cremona, saying, yes, it's like the art world. These are absolutely, incredibly beautiful art objects. But you see a picture of somebody carrying it across some, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York City on the way to a concert. We're using these. These are still being used in a very—they're still tools. And that is a difference. It is a difference. Uh, I think I can't think of any other 300-year-old object that is used in actively following a profession. I mean, in performing your professional duties in a profession. I mean, art you hang on a wall and it's lovely and you look at it. No one uses it in their work. So, I mean, actually using them as a tool in their profession is kind of unique to violins, I think. Yeah, when you thought back on going in and looking at that first uh, Guneri that you were playing with, you said it was... uh, if you look at it in a certain way, and the words I think you used was, it was a rather rude and intimate way to deal with a 300-year-old art object. Well, it is, if you think about it. I mean, you go in, I, I pick up the, all right, we have La Pucelle or the Lord Wilton there. We pick up one of those instruments. You're dealing with something that's a functional equivalent of the Pieta or, or the uh, Mona Lisa. It's, it's, they're objects of that merit. There are no finer objects, let's put it that way. There's nothing finer than one of those instruments. So you're going to play it, right? You put it under your chin. You may sweat on it. You get rosin on top of it. If you're particularly energetic, you might nick the, the rim when you're doing an enthusiastic up bow. And every time you take it out of its case, it's at risk, actually. And in practicing a profession, stuff happens. I mean, these things get worn out, you know. I mean, the fact is, they're not immortal. And the fact is, there is a very slowly changing fashion in these things, too. For example, in Stradivari's day, the instrument to have would have been a Steiner. And Stradivari was famous, but he was a modern maker. You get to Mozart's day, and what everyone wanted was an Amati. In fact, there's an excellent letter from Leopold Mozart to his son, Wolfgang, saying, you know, if you buy one of those, quote, screechy Cremona fiddles, you need to take it to the Montegazza brothers and they'll make it sound better. And then you get to the fact that suddenly Stradivari's become the fashion. When? Viotti and, uh, and Viotant both were Strad players. Viotti goes to London in the late 1700s, and all of a sudden he sounds really, really good, and Strad's become the fashion. And then comes Paganini, and then comes uh, Isaac Stern, and other people like that, Heifetz above all, and they're Guarneri players, and now Del Jesus are the fashion. Now, the fact is, the Hills say that in 1900, for example, they clearly thought Strads were superior to Del Jesus, and perhaps they were in 1900. But the Strads have been fantastically popular in the 20th century. And as a result, they've gotten very heavy wear. 
And the most damage that's been done has been done by luthiers. But on the other hand, accidents happen. A particularly great Strad cello, the owner fell with and broke the back in three pieces. Okay, there's a, a violin of Del Jesu that was lent to uh, Zuckerman at one point. He's playing the Sibelius Concerto with a particularly enthusiastic up bow. He catches one of the corners of the fiddle and tears a piece the size of a 50 cent piece out of the top. Stuff happens. I'm not criticizing him, don't get me wrong. The problem is these are used in practicing profession and they wear out. Now, this brings us to conservation. La Pucelle is in the shape it's in because it was not used in the 20th century. The base of Spain was for the most part in amateur hands in the 20th century. That's why that's a cello. Uh, it's called a bass because in the 1800s they called uh, cellos basses very often. So it's just nomenclature that's changed a little bit. But at any rate, these things wear out. They're not immortal. And so uh, that's where conservatorship enters in. And I've given some thought to what to do. I thought, well, I'll give them to the Smithsonian. On the other hand, any, any citizen can go in and play the instruments in the Smithsonian. And then you have the question of who's taking care of them. And, and uh, so you say, fine, well, I'll set up my own foundation. We'll have wise men who understand these things guard the foundation. So I will, I will appoint experts. I'll appoint Robert Bine. I'll report Charles Beer. And these men will make the decisions about what is done to these instruments. Bine died at age 56. Okay, uh, Beer is uh, in his mid-70s, and at the moment, thank God, is Hale. The point is, 20 years from now, he's not going to be taking care of things like that. So you come bumping up against the problem of playing God. I, I've, I've solved it, actually. My, the way I resolved it myself, and it may be self-serving, is that the best way to ensure these things are preserved is to sell them for a hell of a lot of money. Because if you spend a lot of money for something, you're going to take care of it, aren't you? Uh, the other side of that coin is there's some foundations that lend instruments to young artists. And I think that's a bad idea, too, because if you're lent something, you don't care for it the way you do if you paid for it, do you? And in fact, I know a friend of mine, John Becker, said that one of the instruments lent to the Stradivari Society was a Strad, uh, that was lent out by the Stradivari Society was a Strad. And uh, a particular young artist was very careless with it and broke, broke it up, broke, made a number of injuries to it, broke the top in a couple places and the back had a crack and so on. So Becker labored for months repairing that instrument, then heard the artist laughing about it. So the uh, point is, how do you conserve these things? Well, you kind of have to open your hand and say, well, at the end of the day, you can't play God, can you? And in that conservatorship, is the idea that these instruments should be played so that they, because part of their intrinsic value is their ability to make music. Do you, what's your thoughts on that idea? Well, uh, instruments are improved by playing in the exact proportion that floors are improved by being walked upon. They're used, they're exposed to injury. It is true that if an instrument has been idle for a long time, say a matter of years, that it can take a matter of weeks or months to kind of wake it up. That That is true but they're not injured by it at all, not at all. And the fastest way to turn La Pucelle, for example, into an average strad is to give it to an enthusiastic and energetic artist to travel with for 50 years. Why? They sweat on it, they get varnish on it, it's polished, it has to be, uh, for example, cracks open, uh, the top comes unglued occasionally. You have to glue that back together. God knows who's going to do that if you're on the road. I think the most, one of the most 
uh, non-human injuries that's done to these things is constant changes in humidity. Because you go up in an airplane, it's very, very dry. And you land from there in Singapore where it's very, very damp. The, the wood expands, the wood contracts, cracks open and so forth. So they're, they're not immortal. And uh, what I think about these is, uh, for example, Hans, the violin maker, was here. He was looking at these instruments as a guide to making his own instruments. And uh, I think it's very important that some of them be played because uh, in a hundred years, it'd be very good if they can look at them and see what all the fuss was about. But look, they do go out of fashion. Steiners are not valued now. Amatis are much inferior in current esteem to Stradivari's. And, and also, another change in the last hundred years is I think by and large, Many concert artists prefer a Del Jesu to a Strad, by and large. I think that's because the great Strads have been used, used up. We live in a time where projections into the future, unlike any other time in human history, I mean, just simply the, the, the population on the planet is, in fact, never been as large. Uh, we have environmental stresses on uh, global warming. You see a great deal of... Uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons and nuclear material. I think it brings a, psychologically a fundamentally different idea about preserving things, and especially things that have existed for so long. Uh, what are your thoughts about this in terms of how important it is that people commit their fortunes, their, their passions, to keeping these things alive for future generations? Well, I think, I think certainly keeping things like La Pucelle and the Wilton, Lord Wilton available for uh, makers to look at and even to be heard from time to time uh, is a very worthwhile thing to do. My problem is that how to ensure that the instruments are preserved is unclear. Giving it to a museum is not necessarily the answer. Uh, I have a quarrel with the, some of the people at the Smithsonian, for example, has chosen uh, to maintain the instruments. There have been, in some cases, extreme adjustments put on them that I think actually put them at risk. Um, What's the quartet that was donated to the Smithsonian? Well, there was a quartet that was donated. Of course, there's another f felon <laughs> named Herbert Axelrod, uh, who I, I should say that advisedly. I think he did... He had some problems with the IRS that wound up. I'm not sure if he was incarcerated or not. At any rate, he gave a decorated quartet of strads to the Smithsonian. Uh, the two violins are perfectly wonderful. Robert Bind told me that uh, looking at the viola, it was appeared to be a Stradivari top, a vial top that had been cut down, and that the rest of it was something else altogether. Uh, the, the cello was one that... Uh, had been revarnished, some idiot had revarnished an authentic strad cello and ruined it. And the decorations that were on it were put there by Rene Morel, who was a famous luthier and so on. So, uh, in his opinion, and uh, Charles Beer's opinion, the quartet, which Axelrod had given to the Smithsonian, which was valued for 50 million at that time, was in fact worth maybe 15 million or 16 million, something like that, at that time. And so Axelrod got in trouble over that decorated quartet being there because I think, I think his arrangement with the IRS was he could not take a tax deduction for it. But I'm, I'm not familiar with the details. Anyway, that's, that's a separate story altogether. But uh, the Smithsonian, uh, well, why did the Smithsonian sit still for that? Very simply, he'd given them two perfectly wonderful 
perfectly authentic Stradivari decorated violins. They're not going to offend the man. Here again is James Ennis playing a composition by Tchaikovsky on a violin made in 1742 by Giuseppe Guineri del Gesù. The violin is known as the Lord Wilton. I checked out a DVD at our local library some months ago that told the story of the great violin makers of the town of Cremona in northern Italy. It is a beautifully made film featuring performances by Itzhak Perlman, Joshua Bell, and others. It was only later I discovered that David Fulton produced the film, and that made me wonder what the experience of filmmaking was like for him. I like the process of making films. Uh, I was involved in a film called Expiration Date, which was a dismal failure, mainly because of the marketing approach that the director took. And that was fun. That was an interesting uh, entrance into it. But then uh, it occurred to me, instead of writing a coffee table book about the collection, why not make a film about the collection? And that was actually the motivation for coming up with Homage. Uh, Homage uh, is Jim James Ennis, a great violinist, playing 14 of my instruments. Why did I do that? Partly it was because I thought it would be good for future generations to look at. It seemed to me these instruments are a moving target. They do change. They are injured. Things happen to them. I can't predict what those instruments are going to be like in 50 years. I won't care. But it seemed to me it would be good, like capturing a fly in amber, to have both an audio and visual record of what the instruments seemed like when the film was made, 2009, I think it was. And it seemed to me a worthwhile thing to do. Well, it's fun making the movie. And so the next thing we did was we realized that there's been all kinds of crap uh, written and published and movies made 
suggesting all kinds of erroneous and silly ideas about Stradivari, his secret, you know. For example, some people say, well, his secret was he made, made his violins from trees that were harvested at a certain time. Some people say, well, uh, the varnish was made by dissolving the carapaces of certain beetles in it, etc., etc. Uh, that was made, the wood came from the oars of Venetian galleys that were soaked in seawater. It's all nonsense. And so we thought it would be good to make as definitive a film as we could about what is the truth and what is the best understanding today of actually what's great about them. And the answer is very unsatisfying. The Stradivarius are what they are because he's the best that ever was. It's very simple. Uh, he was at the end of several hundred years of development, actually. So that was fun, and we made the film, and another thing we thought was fun about that film was uh, having the artists talk about it. So you have Perlman saying, oh, a Strad, that's wonderful, and Zuckerman comes on next. He says, Strad, eh, you know, not Del Jesu, that's great. And uh, just how the, the uh, musicians react to... Um, well, we even had a jazz violinist, Regina Carter, who's a wonderful jazz violinist in the film. Uh, we just thought it was very interesting to hear her reaction to these instruments. So, And she's become a good friend. But at any rate, uh, that was fun, and we were very fortunate. We got Alfred Molina to narrate it, and that's the one that won an, a, an Emmy. Um, so I was pleased about that. And the name of it? The full name of the film is Violin Masters, colon, Two Gentlemen of Cremona. And so that's the name of the film, and that, of, the, of the film, and that, that has done well. And then uh, we have just finished one of um, a film about the recording of the Schubert G Major Quartet by the Miro Quartet, using a quartet of my instruments. And the film is actually about the recording process, what they went through. And, and of course, it has a CD of the actual performance, as well as a video of the actual performance, which is really very good. We also have... Uh, a, a film coming out shortly of Lynn Harrell, the great cellist, playing the box suites on the base of Spain, Strad Cello. And so I've, I've had a lot of fun doing the films. It's, uh, I, I love the process of filmmaking, uh, and I've enjoyed that. I like the technology involved. Um, in terms of telling stories, uh, I guess it's a great pastime. So let's have a bit of fun. We've heard about the two great violin makers from Cremona, Antonio Stradivari and Giuseppe Guarneri del Gesù. Well, let's listen now to James Ennis as he plays the same melody on two different violins. The first violin was made by Antonio Stradivari in 1715 and is called the Baron Canoop. The second violin was made by Guarneri del Gesù in 1742 and is called the Lord Wilton. Thank you. 
In the final analysis, it is not that somebody tells you that a certain musical instrument is so very, very special that matters, or that it is worth millions of dollars. It is whether the instrument has the power to move you emotionally, to somehow reach inside and touch your soul. Of course, that is a subjective experience, but perhaps it is possible that certain instruments do possess a quality, a kind of spirit, that rises far above other instruments of similar design. This story that David shared with me makes me suspect that such a thing just might be possible. Here's the thing. Uh, the Miro Quartet came, and uh, they did recording. And uh, when they came to do that recording, and which was on my instruments, they, uh, they said, well, we'd like to do something more than that. We'll, we'll do a house concert for you. So we did a house concert uh, for the benefit of the Orcas Island Chamber Music Society. And they played this great Schubert Quartet on these instruments. This is a sound that uh, you can't really hear mostly anymore because it, it used to be common, now it's very uncommon because people are not playing on these great, great instruments. And after that performance, and of course it was beautifully, beautifully played, there was a group of gentlemen standing over in the corners 20 minutes after the performance ended. And I went up to them. There were, I think, three or four of them. They were crying after that performance. One of them is a former astronaut. I mean, these are not weird people. There's something about these instruments when they're played perfectly that, uh, that reaches you emotionally in a way that's hard to describe. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. This journey through the world of the violin family of instruments has been one full of uh, surprises and delight. We've met many wonderful people, some eccentric. We hope that you have enjoyed these podcasts, and we'll listen again soon.